you know, we have one singular focus and that's ensuring that, you know, meaningful privacy continues to exist even in the digital realm. So, you know, of course, the norm for human communications for hundreds of thousands of years has been privacy, right? You didn't have a handful of corporations and governments, you know, having access to everything you say and where you were located when you said it and your social graph at that moment, like the, you know, kind of the absurd dossiers that are now available to, you know, these powerful entities. Uh, and our belief is that, you know, we should still have meaningful communications privacy because a world without it is a extraordinarily dismal prospect. Um, so, you know, we navigate what we navigate with that North Star in mind. We would like to give special thanks to the Ministry of Digital Affairs of Taiwan for their assistance. This podcast is released under a CC by 4.0 Creative Commons license. Good local time, everyone. Welcome to Season 2 of Innovative Minds with Taiwan Plus. I'm your host, Arnaud Campagne. Innovative Minds is a forum for leaders in tech and politics to discuss how to solve today's problems with today's tools. Today, our special guest is Meredith Whittaker. Meredith is a president of Signal Foundation, a nonprofit organization that supports the development of privacy-focused communication tools, primarily focusing on the Signal messaging app. She's also the co-founder of the AI Now Institute, an interdisciplinary research center focused on studying the societal impact of artificial intelligence. With a background spanning technology and ethics, she advocates for transparency, accountability, and inclusivity in the technology industry. Hi, Meredith. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. I'm also here with Taiwan's digital minister and friend of the show, Audrey Tang. Audrey has been at the forefront of tech innovation and open source promotion for over two decades. She became Taiwan's youngest minister in 2016 when she was appointed as the head of Taiwan's public digital innovation space. She is now head of Taiwan's Ministry of Digital Affairs, MODA, which is responsible for driving Taiwan's digital development. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Hi, and Meredith, congrats on winning the EFF award. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. On behalf of all Signal. Mm -hmm. Today, we will discuss the current state of the open source movement, what's on the horizon for AI, and how to imagine a future where new technologies empower and protect users. So to kick things off, Meredith, could you briefly tell us more about your background as well as your journey so far as a president of the Signal Foundation? Absolutely. Um, and since I've been in this industry for a long time, I'll be brief because it, it could go on forever if you reach once you reach my age. Um, but I've been in tech for almost 20 years at this point, and I started right out of college at Google in 2006. So I started at a very, very different time in you know the tech tech landscape. At that point, Google was a smaller website than Yahoo as measured by monthly active visitors. Um, there was no such thing as an iPhone. If you had a smartphone, it was a BlackBerry. Uh, and I had to print out paper directions to get to my first interview at Google. So just to set the scene, I effectively worked at Google during a time of extraordinary transformation and consolidation in the tech industry. And you know, my career there spanned many different positions. I kind of grew as the company grew and that was at a, a rapid pace. So I, I worked in open source. I was a co-founder of the Measurement Lab effort. Measurement Lab is an open source platform that collects open data about internet performance. So it helps set benchmarks around questions of neutrality and, and other questions around sort of low level internet protocols. And I mentioned that because that was sort of the catalyst for my interest in AI. So I was running Measurement Lab and then I you know, began hearing you know, in the early 2010s about AI or machine learning. And I was like, what is this? What are we doing? Why is this so trendy? And realized that a lot of what was happening was, you know, taking data as a given and obscuring it with statistical techniques, which was concerning to me because I spent a lot of my time, obviously, as someone who was running a measurement platform, caring a lot about accurate data, caring a lot about accurate data construction methodologies, and caring a lot about making sure we could reliably say that data was an accurate proxy for reality. So that was sort of my 
my path into kind of interest in AI, concern over AI. And of course, you know, data is at the nexus of privacy concerns. So alongside of that, I was working on issues of privacy. I was very involved in the Signal community or the, the community within which Signal was part, um, you know, starting in the early 2010. So that was that was really sort of, you know, those are key benchmarks <laughs> along my, my pathway. And, you know, fast forward a number of years, I ran an institute at NYU. I was at the Federal Trade Commission. And then, you know, about, well, a little over a year ago, it became increasingly clear to me, and I still believe this, that the, the best use of my time would be to commit myself to ensure that Signal grows and thrives and that we not only maintain private, you know, truly private digital communications, but we grow and, you know, ideally that becomes a ubiquitous form of digital communication. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. That's what I'm thinking about. And it's, it's great to be here. Great. And clearly, your wealth of experience will be valuable for this conversation. Audrey, Meredith just talked about her involvement in the open source movement. Can you tell us more about your connection with the open source movement and why, from a very young age, you wanted to contribute to it? Yeah, I've been in the industry for what, 27 years now, <laughs> since my first startup uh, in 1996 uh, using the Perl language. Um, I was uh, a high school dropout from junior high back then, uh, and I was able to convince head of my school to let me drop out uh, because I showed her uh, the wild web, in particular uh, the Gutenberg project uh, with the free access of the classic works and archive ARXIV, which is, of course, open access of the edge research. So uh, she feels that I can still give myself an education uh, even without actually going to school. Uh, and so since I did most of my education based on open access and open source and the commons, uh, it's natural that I feel that I must uh, give back. Uh, and earlier uh, in those days, there's no open source in 95. It's called a free software community. And we in the Perl community work closely with GNU, with Linux, with many Apache uh, communities to ensure that uh, what takes uh, from the commons uh, contributes back uh, to the commons. So a lot of my early work was to ensure a infrastructure of trustworthy uh, libraries uh, published uh, in software packages, digital signatures, quality assurance, and things like that, and all in an um, exercise of giving back because that is literally my community. Yeah, I love this idea of benefiting from the commons, but always giving back to the commons. Meredith, the Signal software is free and open source, which means that users are allowed to run the software for any purpose, and that the software's source code has been released under an open source license. It is also free of charge. Can you explain to our audience how the open source business model works and why it is important for you to be structured as a non-profit? Yeah. Well, you know, in our case, I would say open source is part of how we realize our commitment to the people that rely on us. It's not actually a business model. Our business model is, you know, we ask people for donations to keep Signal thriving um, because we refuse to monetize surveillance. And of course, that's the dominant business model in the tech industry. And that gets to why it's important that Signal is a nonprofit. Because of course, if the dominant way of making money in your industry is monetizing surveillance, i.e. violating privacy, then if you are building a system that is solely focused on privacy, you will likely face some pressure to reduce that, erode that, or otherwise put profits and growth above that focus on privacy. So, you know, in our case, particularly in this industry, being a nonprofit is you know, not only a tax status, it's actually a way of guarding against pressures from investors or our board or others that might, you know, structurally want to put profits above our core mission, which is privacy. And following up on that, the Signal Protocol is an end-to-end -end encryption technology used for private communication. As we are aware, this particular feature is no longer uncommon as it is now present in many messaging apps. In your view, what sets Signal apart from other messaging platforms in terms of its commitment to privacy and security? Oh, well, I love this question. Um, yeah, the, the Signal Protocol was authored by Moxie Marlinspike and Trevor Perrin in 2013 and was a, 
you know, it was a historical event in the history of cryptography because it, you know, it effectively made end-to-end encryption on mobile messaging apps possible in a way that human beings could access and use casually instead of it being a kind of requiring an ideological commitment that would impel you to you know, figure out how to use PGP or, or other systems. So this was a real, this was a real game changer. And in fact, one of the reasons that we see end-to-end uh, -end encryption becoming more ubiquitous in, in other non-signal messaging apps is because those apps are using the signal protocol. So WhatsApp adopted the signal protocol in 2015, recognizing that it had actually made, you know, the, the you know, ensuring the privacy privacy of, of message contents possible. Many others use and license the Signal protocol. So, you know, I think that's pretty special. But I would say that, you know, Signal actually goes beyond encrypting the contents of messages, the, you know, what you're saying with the protocol. And that's one of the key differences between Signal and say WhatsApp and other messengers is that not only do we use the Signal protocol to protect what you're saying, but we've developed novel cryptographic techniques on top of that that protects your metadata. So information about you, who you're talking to, and other extraordinarily revealing information. So we don't know your name, we don't know your profile photo, we don't know who's in a group uh, that you're talking to, we don't have your contact list, and we don't know who's sending a message to whom. And, you know, we have you know, we can we can look to quotes from James Clapper and others that are very clear that metadata will get you, I think he said, 80% of the information you need. So protecting that metadata, particularly in the age of powerful inferential AI systems, is really, really important. I would say it's it's essential to truly protecting privacy. So we do all of that and we're open source. So you don't have to take our word for it. You can scrutinize our code. You can, you know, find bugs. If there are bugs, you can report them. So, so we benefit from that immune system as well. I see. The fact that the protocol is open source enables you to receive feedback from users, which in turn can help ensure its security. Audrey, do you think it's necessary to modify the open source business model, if you allow me to call it that way, in order, you know, to keep the best minds engaged in this collaborative effort? Yeah, because I'm old enough, I guess, to remember open source before the term open source. Uh, the main idea back then uh, was that it should serve as a kind of societal infrastructure. That is to say, the very basic underpinnings, for example, uh, communication like signal or identity or payment uh, or uh, just emailing right, each other, um, identifiers and so on, uh, should not be controlled by either um, a very big state or a very big company. Uh, the control should be decentralized, but still interoperable. And that was the very basic ideas of the internet uh, itself. Um, and so I think the business model uh, need to be uh, rethought by thinking of software and open data, of course, uh, as a civilizational infrastructure. And as of this year, uh, we finally convinced the Taiwan cabinet uh, that uh, public code, that is to say open source that's used in the public service, uh, qualifies as infrastructure. So the same kind of public investment that enabled the um, bridges and buildings and parks and campuses, uh, the same idea should also be applied to maintain the underpinnings. Because if we do not do that and let the private sector do that, and they don't find a business model, then they will just do surveillance and sell that as their business model. So in a sense, the government's inability to step in and fund this uh, is directly asking for those externality negative ones to be borne by our citizens. And so just like the government should invest uh, in net zero research, uh, in uh, coaching the industries to reduce carbon emissions, so should we invest in privacy enhancing technologies and releasing them as public code so as to reduce the privacy pollutions uh, in our information landscape. So this is what I think now as digital minister, of course, but also what I did believe in back in 1996. Meredith, do you have any comments about what Audrey just said? Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see more public investment in shared infrastructure, shared digital infrastructure. Um, one of the things that I think about 
you know, daily and I'm very concerned about is the infrastructural concentration in the hands of a few big tech companies, largely based in the U.S. and China. And the fact that increasingly it is very difficult, in many cases impossible, to build software that is not in some way simply a dependency or, you know, I would say it's almost impossible to build software that works, that it can be deployed that is maintained, that isn't, you know, dependent on infrastructure, resources, tooling, et cetera, that is effectively either owned or controlled in some sense by those handful of corporations. So we have a we have a tech ecosystem that is shaped by the profit motives and incentives of, you know, a few boards of directors, not by the social good. Yes, and when we uh, met, I think uh, April this year, uh, we briefly talked about that uh, because Signal at the moment still runs on Amazon Web Service uh, yeah. infrastructure, and so uh, if the AWS uh, for the moment uh, does not have a full region in Taiwan, it means that Signal is very difficult uh, to bring it to Taiwan uh, without a lot of engineering around outposts or things like that. So uh, in Taiwan, we have been investing quite a bit uh, into translating a close sibling of Signal, that's Element Matrix, uh, and hosting it ourselves and doing um, like emergency response drills and so on uh, using decentralized Signal-like uh, protocols and software suites. Uh, but uh, just being able to present, and I did, uh, to uh, people in Amazon Taiwan and say, uh, now we have a, a BATNA, right? If you don't bring Signal or help bring Signal to Taiwan, we will have to use this. Uh, which is very similar. But if you do speed up uh, your work, then Signal itself may be able actually uh, to have this kind of local resilience if our subsea cables are cut. So I think uh, both need to uh, be developed. One is a good relationship with the public cloud providers, but also real alternatives, even if it's a little harder to maintain, but we still have to have a real alternative. Yeah, and I think kind of digging into that, over the last 10 years, and Audrey, I know you saw this very closely, we've moved to a tech ecosystem where it was fairly common for a you know small or medium business or even you know kind of a collective of developers to run their own servers and to you know host widely available you know, digital content, even apps on servers that you know they ran, you know, were in a warehouse somewhere that you know they had hardware operations maintaining those. That is now almost unheard of. We live in a digital ecosystem where just the the norms of how our technology work are such that you know they they implicitly require the type of massive global distribution that only a handful of companies have the server infrastructure to ensure. So you know, in Signal's case, we actually you know as a nonprofit we're looking at costs of you know hundreds of millions of dollars a year if we wanted to run our own infrastructure such that it could support particularly our calling our voice calling and video calling services which need to be you know always instantly available to people across regions and the difference between you know if we were trying to do that on some local servers in the US it means it would not work for anyone who wasn't sort of near those servers and effectively that means it wouldn't work for anyone because you know, not people need to call people, you know, across the world. So, so it, you know, the dependencies and, and the way this ecosystem has been continually shaped and reshaped to, you know, effectively revolve around this increased concentration is something that, that we're very aware of as, as people who have to work with that ecosystem, whether we like it or not every day. I, I should also mention that because Signal uses strong end-to-end -end encryption, while we do, you know, host on Amazon and Google and other dominant cloud providers, they can't access any real information. It's just big encrypted blobs of data that no one even signal can make sense of until it's decrypted by, you know, the sender and receiver. So, so you know, that is not a compromise to privacy, but it is, you know, we go out of our way to make sure that that we don't have to trust Amazon or or anyone else on that. Mm -hmm. 
Indeed, in recent years, uh, it's clear that data privacy and protection have become a global focus. But you know, at the same time, some laws and regulations have attempted to jeopardize the encryption integrity of an application like Signal in the name of online safety, for instance. So my question is as follows. How does the Signal Foundation navigate different legal frameworks to ensure that it upholds users' privacy and freedom of expression rights? You know, we have one singular focus, and that's ensuring that, you know, meaningful privacy continues to exist, even in the digital realm. So, you know, of course, the norm for human communications for hundreds of thousands of years has been privacy, right? You didn't have a handful of corporations and governments, you know, having access to everything you say and where you were located when you said it and your social graph at that moment, like the, you know, kind of the absurd dossiers that are now available to, you know, these powerful entities. Uh, and our belief is that, you know, we should still have meaningful communications privacy because a world without it is a extraordinarily dismal prospect. Um, so, you know, we navigate what we navigate with that North Star in mind. And we are currently, you know, concerned about the an outcropping of legislation that that is threatening end-to-end -end encryption, that is threatening communications privacy, um, you know, things like the spy clause in the UK's online safety bill that in the name of protecting children is proposing an initiative that could allow, you know, the UK government to mandate a, you know, effectively spyware that would scan everyone's messages before they're sent, before they're encrypted, which ultimately nullifies encryption, you know, introduces a significant vulnerability into these systems that, you know, I don't think the people who are proposing this understand. And, you know, to cap it off, doesn't actually, you know, there's no evidence that that type of unprecedented mass surveillance would protect children. So I think, you know, we're dealing with something very old, right? And this is the will to centralize power. And centralized power benefits from information asymmetries. They're a key tool of, you know, social control and you know, domination. And I don't think we're ever going to sort of, you know, unless the structure of our world changes radically, you know, that will will persist. And I, so I don't think this is a fight that we sort of win with facts or we finally convince people that actually, you know, you're going to leave that power on the table. But I do think it's a fight we need to be prepared to continue waging because, again, a world without privacy is a world where, you know, dissent, intimacy, the creation of new alternatives are foreclosed. Um, may, may I ask a follow-up question? Because I'm genuinely yeah. curious. There are many uh, software designs for children uh, and young uh, people under uh, 13, that is to say 12 years or younger, uh, to be subject to a form of surveillance called parental controls. Uh, basically, their parents or designated uh, guardians can actually inspect uh, the kind of communications, the software they download, the things they buy, uh, the picture they send, and so on. But it's not uh, for the state uh, or for, for the company but just to the guardians. Uh, how do you think about this sort of parental control? It's a limited form of surveillance. Well, I think, you know, parents caring for their children is wonderful. And I don't, you know, I don't have an ideological problem with that. What I do have an ideological problem with is when, say, we mandate that all children are required to be surveilled by their parents. Because, mm. of course, we know that for many children, harm comes from the family. Mm. For LGBTQ children, they can actually face, um, you know, real harm within their family if certain things are disclosed. So I think, you know, my view is children are people. They're not, you know, small entities to be managed and controlled. And they do, you know, have a right to privacy, particularly in contexts where they might be punished or hurt without it. Um, but, you know, that is not, you know, that is not to say that parental controls in some cases can't be beneficial and actually help guide children. I just think it's it's not something that we can have sort of a blanket mandate around. Mm -hmm. And we have to be very careful to recognize that, you know, parents aren't always friends to their children, sadly. Mm -hmm. well, so it's like nothing about children without children. It needs to have meaningful input from children and not uh, using children as an excuse, basically. Yeah. OK, yeah. great. Uh, coming back to the topic of open source development, Audrey, has the Ministry of Digital Affairs 
encouraged the use of open source software internally? And if so, what have been the associated benefits? Yeah, definitely. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we take um, infrastructure level open source code already used uh, by other governments, for example, matrix element already by the German and French governments, uh, the GDS forms and notify already by, of course, the UK government, but also many in the Commonwealth and so on. And these are the bedrock components uh, that has already been vetted for cybersecurity issues, penetration tested and so on. And so just by adopting and translating them, uh, we get to benefit from the latest and greatest innovations in accessibility. Uh, in privacy protection and so on. Uh, and our contributions, our fixes can also help uh, everyone who are on the upstream uh, to enjoy a safer uh, bedrock component. And in, on top of that, we also strongly believe uh, that our new code needs to be also provided as open source to other municipal governments and other ministries. Because uh, when we design a large system and we implement a cybersecurity and privacy controls and so on. All of this is a lot of investment. If it does not get reused uh, a lot, uh, then actually everyone has to uh, reinvent uh, the wheel, so to speak. And Zelden does a municipal or city government has the kind of resource our ministry has when it comes to privacy engineering and cybersecurity. So just as uh, a public good, uh, we need to provide such uh, systems. For example, in Taiwan, uh, we uh, just a few months ago gave everyone, all 23 million people in Taiwan, $6,000 because uh, there's um, TSMC and so on. It gave us a lot of extra uh, tax last year. <laughs> and so we share the wealth with people. Uh, but then the system to deliver this payment need to be made into a public code because uh, municipal and ministry governments always needed to um, deliver some uh, coupon or stimulus voucher or stipend and so on to people. And we need to ensure that people get to access them in an accessible way without suffering any privacy or cybersecurity vulnerabilities. So that is another area where we say uh, public code is a kind of public infrastructure. So now let's move on to AI ethics, which is a topic we have talked a lot about in this show. So Meredith, you are the founder of the AI Now Institute, an organization that, I quote, produces diagnosis and actionable policy research to address the concentration of power in the tech industry. What, in your view, are the most pressing ethical challenges posed by AI technologies today? Yeah, well, I want to I want to name the fact that AI now is now led by Amba Kock and Sarah West, who are you know, continuing the scholarship of AI now, and I'm honored to be a chief advisor. But um, I would I would encourage everyone listening to check out their work, which has been extremely incisive on these issues. To answer the question, I think you know, my my primary concern with AI currently is that it is concentrated in the hands of a handful of companies. And so structurally, it's going to, you know, follow the incentives of those companies, not, you know, necessarily be developed or shaped or applied to incentives that may be more beneficial for the social good. So, you know, I think I can give a little bit of history here, but of course, you know, Audrey and, and many of the listeners will know AI is not a new term or a new concept. It's uh, over 70 years old. It was a term that was coined in the mid 50s um, for a number of reasons. And since then, it's been applied to a lot of very different types of technical implementations. So, you know, there's no kind of core technical term of art, um, or AI is not a technical term of art. It's almost more of a aspiration and a marketing term. So then, you know, we can ask, why did it crop up now, why are we seeing, you know, starting in the early 2010s and, you know, now we have a new kind of hype wave. Why are we seeing AI everywhere? What, you know, what made it suddenly relevant? And to answer that question, we again get back to the concentrated power of the tech industry, the commercialization of networked computation in the mid 90s by the Clinton administration, which paved the way for the surveillance business model, which itself is, you know, 
self-reinforcing insofar, or it's kind of a self-reinforcing monopolistic business model in which the winners, you know, have a kind of feedback loop of data and infrastructure. And it's very difficult to enter those markets at a certain point because you need, you know, you need all of those elements and it's, you know, hard to bootstrap. You know, telecom is another type of kind of self-reinforcing natural monopoly, as economists called it. So, you know, from the mid-90s through the early 2010s, you had, you know, kind of the winners of this surveillance business model, I'll you know, kind of put it that way, emerge, right? The Facebooks, the Googles, the, you know, kind of Microsoft effort sort of reinvented itself in the browser wars, et cetera. And you have companies that now have huge infrastructures. They have massive amounts of compute and they've invested a lot in the development of this compute. They've recognized that, you know, GPUs and these sort of parallel processing chips can do a lot to, you know, process data. And of course, they have a huge amount of data because they, you know, have calibrated their systems to collect and store this data, of course, because that's, you know, what the surveillance business model thrives on. So I mentioned that because, you know, what happened in the early 2010s was a recognition that old techniques, you know, convolutional neural nets would state from the late 80s, could do new things when they were matched with this wealth of data and this powerful computational systems. And, you know, so what we see there is that AI emerged not as a sort of novel scientific innovation, but as a product of concentrated power. I've called it a surveillance derivative in the early 2010s. And it relies on concentrated corporate resources to create these larger and larger sort of brute force scale models that are now dominating both the definition of AI in the form of LLMs and the, you know, kind of transformer models that are now, you know, the biggest hype there is, you know, GPT and, and what have you. Um, but, you know, these are products of concentrated power more than they are, I argue, products of kind of pure scientific innovation where we just had a step change in an approach to how we do digital technology. So my concern is that, you know, these are in the hands of these corporations, that they are predicated on a type of concentrated power we should not accept, and that they are being infiltrated into so many domains of life, our social and political institutions, making decisions and predictions that are often invisible to the people they most affect, invisible to the people potentially harmed. Um, so, you know, I see these as tools of capital and tools of concentrated capital, primarily in the hands of corporations in the U.S. and China that are then sort of licensed to large institutions by these, um, at least in the American context, sort of licensed via API contracts and others. But this is not a sort of open ecosystem in which, you know, their playing field is level and, you know, smart people are kind of developing tech alongside each other. Audrey, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I said previously uh, in this video podcast uh, that Taiwan's main strategy has always been what's called edge AI uh, or personal computing, you can call it that. Uh, the idea, very simply put, is that uh, the model, the fine-tuning, everything, should they be um, as close to the actual people using it as possible. Um, I'm happy that there is currently a thriving open source community uh, around AI. There's truly open source uh, re-implementations uh, like Repajama and so on for the leading language models. Uh, they're not exactly open, but still available, uh, like Llama 2 uh, models uh, is performing better than the free version of ChatGPT. Uh, it runs very well on this MacBook <laughs> as I speak. Uh, so um, now we have the precondition for the kind of open source uh, or commons uh, movement for AI as compared to a year ago uh, when, you know, GPT 3.5 uh, was being offered in private betas and so on. There's nothing in the open source world that compares uh, to ChatGPT. And so I think we're in a slightly better place now and people are generally more aware that if you uh, input all your private details uh, to a few companies, uh, they may say that you can fill in a Google form to opt out from, um, you know, future training that model, but you never 
actually now. Uh, and uh, to that end, uh, um, we are also working with the science minister uh, in Taiwan to strongly discourage all public servants in Taiwan to use those uh, large API-based um, concentrated uh, corporate offerings for anything related to public service use because we cannot be absolutely sure that they will not use those uh, public sector details of the citizens uh, for training their next generation models. And if they do, uh, then people will magically uh, find <laughs> to their um, surprise uh, that their private details are somehow known by GPT-5 or something. Uh, so we uh, believe in democratization of not just use, but also development, uh, design, benefits, and governance of AI models. We understand that we're on very early um, times in this kind of things, but I think just like people are now taking end-to-end uh, -end encryption as something that is the baseline, soon we will also see meaningful inputs and meaningful co-creation and co-design into AM models as a baseline. I think the open source, the open source movement and focus in AI is largely positive. And I think, you know, I want to disentangle some things you know, in part because I've been writing a paper that should be out soon with David Witter at CMU and Sarah West at AI Now, kind of looking at open source AI. And Audrey, as you mentioned, Llama, you know, uses the term open, but is not really open. And I think, you know, um, there's just a, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of different definitions of what open means that are being marshaled by many different actors and because there isn't a clear definition of kind of what is open source AI given the many components that go into an AI system, the many stages of creating and deploying an AI system, this is still, you know, contested terrain. But, you know, ultimately, of course, you know, open source AI at its best can provide meaningful transparency. So you can evaluate the model, you can look at its weights, which are incredibly important to understanding what it's doing. You can look at documentation, things like data sheets or model cards that can tell you a bit more about the provenance of, you know, the information that trained the model and the, you know, editorial choices of the developers as they were constructing the model. You can also, they, you know, open source can also offer reusability attributes like, you know, kind of traditional open source software. So there's a license, you can, you know, grab a model package um, and, you know, then run it under, you know, some terms or another kind of reusing it, right? I think it's important, however, to note that what is not being opened is access to the very expensive infrastructure needed to DIY a large model from scratch. So when we talk about open source AI models, even the most open, you know, usually what we're doing is taking a pre-trained model, which has already gone through, you know, a, tr a very expensive training run, which can cost, you know, multiple millions of dollars just in sort of compute power to run. You're taking something that's already been trained and then you're building on top of it. You're sort of, you know, it's called fine tuning. And, you know, I know you all know this, but just for the audience. Um, and so you're modifying something that was already sort of authored by others. But I think it's it's important to be distinct here because what has not been leveled is the playing field for sort of creating AI from scratch, um, nor has the, you know, ex the, the labor and the cost and the kind of painful processes of creating the type of data sets needed to train these AI from scratch, which require, you know, we've seen a lot of reporting around, you know, Kenyan workers are often, you know, the people who are actually creating the data, then calibrating these systems, then, you know, kind of imparting the human intelligence that then becomes sort of attributed as machine intelligence down the road. So those two assets, the compute and the data remain, you know, very costly and in some senses kind of off limits to sort of DIY developers in a way that was not true of the original sort of open source of free software movement where you could, you know, kind of you know, write a software package, put it out there and people could reuse it on much more equal terms. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as I, I totally agree. And as I mentioned, we're uh, still on uh, the beginning, the baby steps uh, to this. 
Uh, on the other hand, I'm quite encouraged uh, by the recent developments. Uh, for example, just this June, uh, there was this paper called Textbooks Are All You Need, which means that uh, a small model, a 1.3 billion model, uh, trained for only four days uh, on eight graphic cards, which means most schools uh, can afford that kind of training. Uh, but with very high quality data, it seems, uh, can actually give um, state-of-the-art performance uh, on programming and things like that. So it may come to a point uh, where the narrow AIs uh, are trained by the community and the high quality data is either derived uh, by those open enough AIs that allows its output to be used to produce such high quality data or some sort of data cooperative or data coalition of high quality community input so they can uh, collectively own that tuned model to their liking. And so this is much more like uh, a transition from mainframe to PCs uh, we went through like mini uh, computers, workstations and things like that. But I think the need is there. And so I'm generally positive that it will probably evolve that way. So Meredith, you've just given us an overview of the current problems with the AI industry, like concentration of power and resources, the lack of transparency, the centralization of data. So in addition to the existing regulatory framework governing AI companies, what urgent measures do you think should be adopted now? Yeah, well, I'm going to answer this in a, a bit of a heterodox way, because I think, you know, I would point people to the AI Now 2023 landscape report, which has very concrete policy provisions um, and work by people like Michael Veal in Europe that are analyzing the European policy uh, policy landscape. Um, you know, there's a lot of good information out there, but I, you know, I kind of want to answer this from another angle, which is that you know, my greatest hope right now for meaningful AI regulation that will actually, you know, help people who could be harmed, who are at risk, is the Writers Guild of America and Screen Actors Guild strike that mm. is happening in Hollywood. And for the people who may not be familiar, these are, you know, kind of established and fairly powerful unions that represent the Writers Guild of America, represents writers who write TV and movies. Screen Actors Guild represents actors, celebrities. Um, and they are on strike right now demanding that they, as the workers, be able to decide whether AI is introduced into their creative process and how, if it's introduced, it's used. And this is incredibly important because, of course, the business model of these tech companies is to license these to the people who can pay for them. And the business models of the studios who are running kind of the you know corporate Hollywood is to cut costs as much as possible. And so we're looking at a context where AI, whether or not it can perform creative labor, and of course it can't, it's a you know, probabilistic engine, um, is set to be used as a pretext to degrade the working conditions and the lives of these workers, in addition to producing art that is not created by humans about our shared world and reality, which is, you know, creates a, you know, much more impoverished landscape of artistic expression and a world that, you know, I don't think is very nice to live in. So this is this is a front line that is happening now that is not waiting on the construction of a new federal agency, that is not waiting on an omnibus bill to be passed, that is actually leveraging the power that workers have to say, no, you can't introduce this in a way that will harm me. And in this way, it actually echoes struggles from the British Industrial Revolution, where workers were not actually opposed to the technology itself. They were opposed to the way that industrialists were introducing technology uh, and then, you know, introducing it in ways that took all the gains for themselves and further impoverished the workers. So I think this is an incredibly important struggle. Uh, and I think we're going to see more of it. And so, uh, as I prepared for this interview, I came across some articles on the AI Now Institute website where I saw that the Institute has been criticizing the instrumentalization of the AI race between China and the US aimed at avoiding regulations targeting big tech companies. So let me play the devil's advocate here. What do you have to answer to those who say that a Chinese victory in this field could have far-reaching military and economic implications against the USA and the rest of the world? I mean, I think we need to define what victory means. What race are we entering? What contest are we entering? And what are we winning there? Because 
you know, these are great systems for social control. These are great systems for worker degradation, worker surveillance. But I'm not interested in winning the contest of being the best worker surveiller, right? So I think, you know, there is, what, what we're seeing is, you know, economic jockeying, right? Because for, you know, precise historical regions, reasons, the U.S. and China are, you know, places where, you know, large monopolistic tech companies have emerged. And, you know, it's very difficult to recreate that in the ecosystem we have. You know, both had sort of self-contained markets. The U.S. had the sort of military history of AI, of, um, well, AI too, but, you know, kind of networked computation that it was building on when it commercialized these systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I don't, you know, one, I want to understand what the definition of this race is. Like what, you know, play this out for me. What are you actually concerned about? And two, I think, you know, you can mitigate dangers, but, uh, you know, and, and, you know, risks here, but it's, you know, what is being argued oftentimes is effectively, you know, or, or, or the way the narrative has been constructed is almost a, a recreation of Cold War narratives in the U.S., which I think are, you know, one, have become fairly xenophobic uh, in ways that are not healthy um, and, you know, two, are being used to justify not regulating these technologies because, you know, we can't handcuff ourselves if, you know, China is moving forward. Um, and are being justified to, you know, and are being used to justify bringing, you know, these large surveillance companies closer in contact with the U.S. military and Department of Defense, which I think, you know, for me is an extremely alarming conflict of interest. And as we saw from the Snowden leaks is something that, you know, there's a lot of desire for the intelligence community and the, the military for the kind of surveillance that these companies have access to for the type of access to everyday infrastructure and people's you know devices and lives that these companies have access to so i think that conflicted relationship is also very dangerous and this is you know this is actually catalyzed my labor organizing at google was you know protest against department of defense ai contracts yeah, I think um, putting on my uh, chair of Cybersecurity Institute hat, uh, I think the race should be the race toward safety. Uh, and safety is not just in terms of cybersecurity, which of course is important, but also uh, on the trustworthiness of the, the arrangement. Uh, and for example, when people just assume that surveillance capitalism is inevitable, then they don't actually trust each other that much on those online platforms. Uh, and as a kind of reverse um, perverse incentive, only the most uh, toxic or polarizing or trolling uh, speech thrive because those does not require that much trust. So if when people understand uh, as a kind of uh, learn helplessness that there's this just monoculture that's going to offer standardized answers to all the humanities questions, uh, regardless of which culture uh, did it uh, occur from, uh, then people will not be that incentivized to help their neighbors on, say, uh, Stack Overflow or some other community forums. In fact, we have seen the contributions just plummet uh, after the introduction of generative AI that people can just individually ask their questions and receive some standardized answers. And so in that will um, cause a thinning of the fabric of trust uh, in the open source and online commons ecosystems, which could be really detrimental actually also to those um, AI trainers in the future, because there will be not much authentic um, text left or images left uh, on the public internet. So uh, I think one of the my take on safety is that people need to feel safe, not just with a model, as in not saying toxic language or synthesizing biohazards, but also feeling safe in participating uh, in this pipeline, that they understand that the fruit of their labor in correcting the model or whatever will not go back and harm uh, their dignity and harm their uh, work, harm their um, personal reputation and many other things. And uh, if there is no guarantee of that sort of safety, I think it's best that we assign the liabilities to re-internalize those negative externalities to those API providing companies. And I think that agrees largely with the AI now uh, policy uh, prescriptions. 
to follow up on this idea of safety and accountability of AI models, uh, we've been hearing a lot lately about the notion of algorithmic accountability. And I wanted to hear your thoughts, Meredith, on its usefulness in the context of AI. Yeah, I mean, I think that term can be useful. It's used, you know, similar to the term open in the context of AI, it's used in variegated ways that are often, you know, some of some of the uses or the implicit definitions do seem beneficial. Some of them could be termed ethics washing. So I think we need to, you know, always get down to the brass tacks of, you know, accountable to whom, how is that accountability established? And how do we ultimately make sure that the people who are most at risk of harm are front and center in any accountability system? Uh, and I think that is that is very difficult to do, given that the reality of AI currently is that it's often, you know, it's used on us. We are not the users of AI generally. It is used by our employers. It is used by law enforcement. It is used by our, you know, institutions like universities. It is used by governments to assess us, to surveil us, to make decisions about our access to resources and opportunities. Um, and so how to create an accountability system that is actually intervening at those points of decision-making, you know, given that a lot, oftentimes the people who are being affected are not aware that an AI or algorithmic system was involved in that process. I think, I think there are a lot of questions there and the the political economy of the AI industry makes it very difficult to imagine what, you know, what would accountability look like if at every step of my day when I was being sort of, you know, when my world was being shaped in large or small ways by an algorithm, I were sort of confronted with an ability to hold, you know, is it, you know, the institution deploying it, the institution that created it and maintains it, et cetera, accountable. So I think there are big questions about how and we need to you know, keep our eye on the ball in terms of who needs to benefit from such an accountability. Yeah, so we need to be wary of these you know, fancy words and always uh, yeah. go further I'm than not, the, you know. Not interested in bringing Accenture in to check a bunch of boxes and say this is accountable, mm. right? Mm. Audrey, on this notion of uh, algorithmic accountability, you have something to say? Yeah, um, so we're now um, working with uh, the term is called Shujigongi or data altruism organizations, both internationally and also locally, uh, to help um, getting a new kind of organization uh, that represents the public benefit or the benefit of a bunch of people. Well, traditionally, these are called a co-op. Uh, some of them are actually co-ops, but it's just cooperative in spirit uh, when it comes to data. And part and parcel in the data altruism uh, is that it needs to be accountable to anyone's private data that it helped process to prove conclusively that uh, when used, uh, it is used in a way that cannot be re-identified in any way uh, back to the uh, individual data contributors. Uh, and it needs to prove that not just to a regulator, uh, but rather uh, in a, as transparent as possible way, including the algorithm use. Do they use differential privacy? Do they use homomorphic encryption, multi-party computation? Any of those privacy uh, engineering is not exactly, as Meredith said, just box to be ticked, but actually the exact pipeline, the parameters, the configuration uh, need to be uh, reproducible. And only then do we call it a um, altruistic uh, organization, data altruism organization. And uh, also as important is the charter of the organization, uh, whether it's a co-op or a foundation like Signal and so on, uh, it needs to very clearly say it only works for purpose and not for the shareholder profit. Uh, if they need to recover some of the cost, uh, then fine, but they must not earn more than that. It must not work for a, a shareholder maximization uh, imperative. And so regardless of which organization type it takes, you need to commit to 100% for purpose, not for uh, profit maximization. And so only when the purpose uh, and the mechanisms are publicly accountable, can we then say, oh, they're a natural ally 
for the public service. They're a natural ally for our public infrastructures, and we trust them to work with, for example, healthcare or transportation or any of those public goods venues in order to inform our policy making in a way that respects our citizens' dignity. I think it's interesting to think of publicly accountable purposes and mechanisms for AI models. So, Meredith, uh, can you uh, picture a future where the use of AI technology is spread out across the entire society and serves the common good? Oh, wow. Well, I don't think that's a technical problem. I think that is a political problem. And I think this is about power and incentives and you know, who has the power to make decisions about our future, right? Right, you know, we are in a, at least, you know, I I came up in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is a epicenter of tech. It's, you know, arguably the epicenter of tech, but, you know, I think that's reductive, um, you know, it, but historically has been very important. And, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, you had the, the Netscape IPO and the sort of, you know, in, establishment of the VC funding model, where effectively venture capital has been, you know, enabled, and this is reductive a bit, but enabled to, you know, decide the path of computational innovation, you know, what gets made and what doesn't. Uh, we now have, you know, large tech companies and a bit in addition, it, you know, in addition to the investor class making those decisions, right, based on self-interest, based on profit. So that, to me, is the core problematic. The core problematic is not that we haven't had a bright idea about how to distribute computation, how to you know, undo and rebuild these infrastructures, how to think differently. I think ideas are everywhere. The issue is that those with the resources to decide whether an idea gets implemented are calibrating their expenditure of resources based on profit return and market growth, which are not you know, those are not incentives that are going to lead us to the future that you, uh, you, you know, point to and sort of ask about. Um, and so I think, you know, that is the problem to be solved before we can sort of, you know, um, you know, imagine these, you know, radically different futures and not before we can imagine them. We can imagine them and we need to be imagining them. We need to be sort of, you know, having a rich and textured alternatives in our mind and hearts all the time. But to do those, we need to recognize the barriers are not simply that we need to explain more clearly an idea to those who don't get it. They get it, right? The idea, the, you know, the barrier is that we need to figure out how we wrest some of those resources from those who have them or how we shift the incentives or how we restructure our, you know, political and economic landscape so that those ideas have room to breathe. Audrey, about this shift of initiatives? Yeah, very well said. Um, I have a uh, little to add to that, except uh, I've been thinking about the term uh, DIY or do yourself uh, that uh, Meredith mentioned. In, in Taiwan, I guess we're always, uh, ever since when I was very young, uh, kind of immersed in this kind of uh, what we nowadays call maker uh, culture, uh, partly because, well, Taiwan is the place uh, to make PC and PC clones, just as Silicon Valley is the place to make those new algorithms. And uh, even as of today, um, almost all of those uh, AI powering chips are made in Taiwan. So uh, we naturally don't find it as um, kind of mystical in Chanting uh, as it is. It is actually just uh, another product that our supply chain makes. And uh, because of that, people are willing to remix it. So uh, I think part of the lessons that we learn is that not all countries are comfortable with their citizens tinkering and remixing either hardware or software or encryption systems. Uh, but I sincerely believe that if the government oversteps and restricts uh, certain um, criminal uses of software or open source, that is to say to have it not served for any purpose, 
then uh, we're on a slippery slope because in order to enforce that, you have to, to know exactly how it is being used. And to do that, you will have to work with surveillance capitalists in order to build that thing. And so I think uh, one of the main things that the government can do is actually just to maintain this kind of credible neutrality in a sense that we fund research. We fund uh, um, like our National Academy uh, around the turn of century has been funding open source in terms of open foundry, creative commons, and so on, and really embrace this arm's length in that uh, we trust the researchers to uh, come up with those ethical challenges and guidelines and things like that, and we take them seriously, but we're not doing this top-down string-attached funding that tells them uh, exactly what uses are allowed and everything else is prohibited. So a healthy relationship uh, with academia and with civil society in general, I think, has always been the case in Taiwan, but we need to to uh, just be more vocal about this being uh, the precondition of the kind of maker culture that we want to see uh, in the, uh, the century and beyond. Uh, Meredith, uh, apart from the Signal messaging app, I'm curious to know if the Signal Foundation envisions creating and advancing any other innovative technologies that align with its mission of protecting user privacy. Well, you know, of course, the app is our core offering. Um, and it, you know, anyone who develops at scale software that, you know, consumer software knows that, it, you know, it's a forever job, you know, across every platform, you need to have people working on it constantly adapting to, you know, changes in your operating system, changes in other dynamics. Uh, so that's really what we focus our time on. But of course, you know, the protocol is a great example of core technology that enhances privacy that, you know, works well beyond the Signal app. I would look to our group's encryption technology, which what is, you know, developed methods for, um, you know, encrypting um, group, group conversations. Um, and, you know, for many reasons, it's very difficult to sort of do end-to-end encryption in, in group settings. And this was, a, you know, again, a novel methodology that, that is out there for reuse. Uh, and our metadata protection, our sealed sender protection is also technology that is, you know, exists and there are implementations that are public that people, you know, can license and reuse. Uh, we're also working on a post-quantum, uh, we're you know, kind of slowly working on a post-quantum version update to the protocol um, that, you know, is just just good security hygiene. So, so those are a couple of things. And I think, you know, I would love to see a world where other large messengers begin to adopt our metadata protections, because it's really, you know, I think that's that's going to be, you know, that's going to be something we need to push. It's not going to just happen in the current ecosystem with the sort of legislative threats to privacy, but it is incredibly important as we were talking about in the beginning, given how powerful metadata can be, to identify and make determinations about people and you know, ultimately undermine their privacy. Indeed, it is very important to make people aware of this issue. Uh, Audrey, as technology continues to evolve rapidly, what future open source innovations do you hope to see for user privacy and security? I think uh, the popularization uh, of zero-knowledge uh, systems uh, is probably the next thing. Uh, Signal, as I understand, already used some zero-knowledge technologies in protecting user metadata. Uh, the main idea is that uh, you can do meaningful computation and even recognize that, for example, this is a citizen, this is someone who has registered, but without learning anything that you don't already know about them. So so instead of presenting you my photo ID, which is all my private details, I present you a cryptographic proof, which proves that I hold some legal ID uh, without revealing anything really about me. Or if uh, a um, liquor store needs to know that I'm of um, 18 years old, I can prove I'm an adult uh, without actually uh, letting you know my age and so on. So this kind of uh, zero knowledge proofs uh, was kind of hard to compute, but now 
nowadays more and more accessible to more and more people. And um, in the future, I think we will see even more of that in that, for example, if I upload uh, my uh, document to the cloud to collaboratively be edited by other people, uh, currently I will probably have to trust uh, the centralized server hosting Google Doc or whatever. Uh, but now with uh, zero knowledge um, technologies, it is actually now possible to compute, even calculate uh, the average or sum of spreadsheets and things like that uh, without actually knowing uh, the numbers in those uh, cells in a spreadsheet. So computation over encrypted data or homomorphic encryption uh, is the next step uh, of applying zero knowledge uh, technologies. So I think, um, and in that, of course, TSMC and other Taiwanese chip makers uh, have a lot to contribute in making this a reality. But I think eventually it will flip the default so that when we upload things to the cloud, currently it's always in a form that the cloud can see. But uh, we think uh, in a few years, maybe we can invest enough to develop a new norm where you upload to the cloud by default encrypted and only you and people you authorize can see in the cloud exactly as uh, Meredith said, just process those blobs of big black boxes that those cloud providers know nothing about, but can actually compute over uh, and even train AI models, but without uh, data maximization that let them uh, collect and have a copy of everything that passes in this transit. Uh, Meredith, do you have any questions about that? How do you feel about what Audrey just said? No, I'm, I'm a big fan of homomorphic encryption. Again, I think it's a, a question of will, not a, a question of whether or not it's beneficial. And um, yeah. Okay. So I think we've covered all the topics I prepared for this interview. Unless you have a question for each other to ask, uh, I think I'm good for today personally, but it's up to you. Well, I don't have anything burning. I thought this was a really lovely conversation. So thank you both. Mm -hmm. And Great. nice to see you again, Audrey. Yeah, um, on, on the um, ethics uh, point of AI, do you have some uh, guests that you suggest we can invite to elaborate on those topics? Because the artist strikes is great take, but we would yeah. actually love to hear from, I don't know, the, the people in um, AI Now or Timnit, or do, do you have any recommendations? I think Timnit would be great. I think the folks at AI Now would be excellent, uh, Ambakak mm -hmm. and Sarah West. Um, I think you know, Ben Winters, who's been doing work at Epic in the US is great. Mm -hmm. um, I think Michael Veal, whom I mentioned earlier, who's in the UK and does a lot of you know really detailed work on European legislation and UK legislation would also be great. So you know those are some those are some folks that come top of mind. And if I think of any others, I can just send them over. But yeah, I think uh, they'd be okay. great. Thank you for joining today. I've been Arnaud Campagne here with Meredith Whitaker and Audrey Tang. Please check more information and videos on TaiwanPlus.com. Find us on YouTube at TaiwanPlusDocs. If you liked today's episode, be sure to subscribe, share, and let us know what you think. See you next time on Innovative Minds with Taiwan Plus. This episode was produced by Taiwan Plus and Deep Soul Studio. If you would like to check out more, you could find Season 1 of Innovative Minds already available on all podcast platforms, YouTube, and TaiwanPlus.com. 